Holy God, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, there's um, this book that I read early on in ministry that holds a very special place on my bookshelf. It's one of my favorite books to go back and to read. It's called The Hidden Lives of Congregations. Did you know that we have hidden lives as a congregation? Um, The book draws on a, a theory of community that goes by a few names, but the one which I know is family systems. Maybe you've heard of family systems before. If you've taken a social work class or anything like that, you've heard of family systems. Basically, family systems says that when people get together in community, there are patterns of behavior that are more about the system you're in than your individual choices. Now, maybe that's confusing, so let me think about it this way. If you think about a family, then you know that where you are born in the family might shape how you behave in that family. Uh, The way that a younger child acts is different than an older child because there are different expectations placed on them. And some of those expectations are really explicit and some of them aren't. And then you can throw in the middle child and you get a totally different reaction and it's anybody's guess why they act the way they do. And you know, you can even think about this this last week with Thanksgiving. Think about when you come home as an adult to your parents' house and all of a sudden, even though you're a responsible adult, you're the youngest child and so you expect everything to go your way because everything always goes that way for the youngest child and you can't quite figure out why you're acting that way but you've been put back into this family system and the family system has expectations. As an older child, I go home and I get like uber responsible and I can't figure out why. I'm, I'm downright uptight when I go home for holidays. And it's because I'm part of this system. And even though I don't want to be that way, the system influences how I act. And so the hidden lives of congregations is about the way that the events or the stories or the roles get played out in congregational life, in community. There are things that people do within a congregation that you aren't always aware of. And so the point of the book, The Hidden Lives of Congregations, is to help leaders recognize that sometimes change requires you to be aware of these forces. So in a congregation, in my, the first congregation I served as an associate pastor, uh, we had this, this thing happen that made me see this in action. Uh, the senior pastor left about 11 months into my time there. Uh, and I was helping as the associate pastor with the transition. And I had coffee with this woman who was fairly active, uh, but she was angry about everything. I mean everything, the way the deacons were organized. She was angry about the way the church was decorated and how it looked on Sunday. I mean everything. And she had never been that way before and I couldn't figure it out. Why is she so upset about everything all of a sudden? And then sometime in our conversation, she said something that, that made me pause. 
she said that the senior pastor had abandoned them. Now, you have to understand that my senior pastor did a great job at that church, that she brought new life to that church, that she was in all ways a responsible, ethical, and upstanding leader in that church. And in fact, she had left on incredibly good terms. And she had left the right way. She had taken her time leaving that church. It was a good transition. And yet this woman was mad at absolutely everything. And it was because she was mad that the pastor had left. And for her, it wasn't a conscious thing. It wasn't like she was saying, I don't like all of this, so I'm going to be mad. She just had this thing that she couldn't name, this hidden force that had changed the community and her role within it. There had been a change in the community, in the collective life of the church, and therefore, her role, unbeknownst to her, had changed. So when we think about communities, we sometimes look at the folks who are in charge or who are prominent or who have influence and think that things are really about their leadership. But what we don't realize is that there are behaviors that are about more than us as individuals. That there are behaviors that come about because of how the community functions together. And so today we're going to hear this story about a great leader. A king in Judah who was ready to come in and restore much of what had been lost during his predecessor's reign. And you would think that during a time of reform that this great leader, that his charisma, that his wisdom and guidance would be enough to turn everything around. But unfortunately, that's not how the story goes. And so let's listen to our reading that comes from the book of 2 Kings. Josiah was eight years old when he began his reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah of Boscath. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shepham, son of Azaliah, on of son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to the high priest Hilkiah and have him add up the entire sum of silver that has been brought into the house of the Lord that the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hands of the workers who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workers who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is to the carpenters, the builders, to the masons, and let them use it to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the silver that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Then the high priest Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it, then Shaphan's secretary, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have melted down the silver that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workers who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, the priest Hukiah has given me a book. Stephen then read it aloud to the king. 
So the priests, Hilkiah, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to the prophet Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. She resided in Jerusalem in the second quarter where they consulted her. She declared to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, I will indeed bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and made other offerings to gods, so that they have provoked me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and will not be quenched. But as to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring on this place. They took the message back to the king. Then the king directed that all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem should be gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him went all the people of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, keeping his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. May God bless this reading. Well, one thing about the Bible that we really need to be clear of is that it's not always one coherent story. Um, contrary to what some people want to believe, it does contradict itself at times. And that's okay, as long as you acknowledge that that's what it is. Because what the Bible really is, is a collection of stories from the people of God about what it means to be faithful. And so sometimes it tells cautionary tales. Like you'll read something in the Bible and you're not supposed to go, oh, I should do that. You're actually supposed to go, I shouldn't do that. Because <laughs> that's not the way you're supposed to do things. Sometimes the story reminds us of times when God is faithful, even when we are not. Sometimes it tries to teach us an ethical story about what it means to live a good life. And in this way, it's actually a lot like all of the study of history. I'm glad that the social studies teacher is to my left on this one. The point of history is you read it and you learn from it. And in fact, you learn from the experience of others. Oh, they did it this way and things went poorly. Maybe we shouldn't do it that way. And so the Bible, we turn to it to see what we can learn about our interactions with God as individuals and a community. And so the book of 2 Kings tells the story of the early rulers of Israel and Judah. And some were really good leaders, and some were really bad leaders. 
In fact, this is the exact thing when Israel asks for, a le- asks for a leader the first time. If you go back to the book of 1 Samuel, the people demand that the prophet appoint for them a king. And God says, you don't really want one. It's going to come with war and famine and slavery. And the people say, no, we do want one. And so they get a king. And then they get another king and another king and on and on and on. And what do they get? Some good things, a lot of bad things, a good amount of war, some attempt at reform. And so by the time we get to our passage for today with King Josiah, we read that the people have strayed, that they have wandered from the covenant, that they have put up statues to other gods, that they have made alliances, that they wage war, all the things that they are not supposed to do. And Josiah comes along and decides that it is time to make a change. He removes the statues. Uh, He redistributes some of the the money that has been gathered in the temple. I love the story we read today. One of his uh, servants finds some book buried back in the temple that hasn't been opened for a long time. It's a copy of the Torah. You know, the book that's supposed to guide their life. Nobody's read it in a while. And so Josiah works towards making all of these changes to try to bring the people back. And so it really is one great faithful leader against the patterns of the people. And the lesson of this story is maybe not what we want to hear. One person is not always enough. Often history isn't shaped by one personality, but by the system they find themselves in. And in the case of the story of Josiah, all of his reforms aren't enough. Even though he is one person, this great leader leading reforms, the system seems to be more than his personality can handle. And so we hear in this passage that God says to him that he will at least allow Josiah to die before Judah's retribution takes shape. That's what he means when he says Josiah will join with the ancestors. Sometimes one great leader isn't enough to reform a system. I was thinking about uh, this story and it made me go back to one of my college classes when I was in a history class. And I I learned the name for this theory, uh, the great man of history. It's this theory that was developed in the 1800s and it was theorized that history is shaped by great leaders, by great men, largely. And I use men because in 1840 they meant men. But you can name them, Martin Luther, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, on and on and on. The idea is that it's the will and leadership of those individuals that creates change in the world. Well, the story of Josiah is kind of a warning about this. Because Josiah, from the perspective of 2 Kings, was a great man. And yet the system he was in, Judah, was not a place where his influence could change much. He was overwhelmed by the systems around him. And throughout history, the great men often arrive at just the right time. You know, there were other great military leaders in the 1700s, 
But George Washington happened to show up at exactly the time when the revolution broke out. He was a great man and the system of his time allowed for him to be the great leader. You know, Martin Luther in Europe was a great leader, was somebody who had great powerful ideas, but he wasn't the first person to have great ideas. You probably don't remember the name Erasmus, who came a hundred years before him and was considered a great reformer in Europe. But when Luther started pushing back against the Pope and the power of Rome, what he had were a whole bunch of local princes who were looking for any excuse to break with the Holy Roman Empire. So his great leadership met with a system that was ready to welcome him. And this is the flaw of the great man theory. Great people are sometimes able to shape the world around them, but there's usually some other factor that allows them to do so. And that's the lesson of the story of Josiah. Sometimes we can be tempted to look for the one person, the one thing that will fix all of our problems. You know, we know this in the U.S. with presidents. Next year, we are going to hear a lot about the people running for president. We're going to hear a lot, a lot, a lot. I don't, I'm just preparing you, next year is an election year. And you're probably going to hear about the one person who can fix everything. Except the deal is, there is not one person who can fix everything. There is not one great leader who's going to come and make everything Right. The candidate can only do so much. And so really this is the lesson of Josiah. It's not the great men who shape history. It's the communities that focus on health and life together, that make room for the change to happen. Positive change has as much to do with a bunch of really small actions by folks on the edges than it does to do with one person whose charisma can move us to action. Maybe another way to say this as the church, as Christians, is that we might say that there has been a great man, one of them, and we're waiting for him to return. And in the meantime, we're all going to do our best. We will all take responsibility for our own actions, for the states of our communities, we will seek to live as faithfully as we can, just like the folks in scripture were trying to do. But if we're waiting for a savior to come and fix everything, you know, the way we kind of think of history, we have to realize that between every great leader, theologian, pastor, president, is a community that is ready for transformation. Behind every great person in history is a lot of other work. So when we're thinking about being good Christians and good Christian community, let's start where we are. I think we often think, when we think of the great people of history, that, oh, I can't change the world. You might think because you are not the great charismatic leader that you cannot influence change in the world. But trust me, the world does not need another great man. It needs you and all of us living with generosity, 
loving radically, practicing hospitality and mercy in all that we do together. It doesn't need some powerful charismatic leader to come fix everything. It needs a bunch of caring people who have decided that it is their job to look out for one another and for their neighbors. It needs a community in which folks realize it's the little stuff that matters. It's the little stuff that brings about change. We don't need great men. We need us. Let us pray. Oh, holy and gracious God, as we gather here today, we pray that you might put it on our hearts to seek to live as you have called us to live. That in all things we might be conduits for your grace and love and mercy. For we know, O oh holy God, that you are making us new, that you are shaping us for service and ministry. O oh holy and gracious God, we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.